This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, on a Sunday, Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. I'm on a virtual Thursday, virtual Sunday thing. <laughs> exactly, as we always are. We're recording this on Thursday, so if anything's gone badly, badly wrong, all right. In the meantime, our apologies for not covering it in the, in the duration. Mate, let's get it. We've got a heap of questions, so let's, let's put the banter aside just for a second. We'll have plenty as we go. Let's get stuck straight into the questions. Now, I know you love this, mate. This is going to be an almost all Instagram program. Uh, we've got a heap of Instagram questions. I, I, I said no tangents. I'm going to do it anyway. I am fascinated by the different interaction we get on different platforms. Instagram is phenomenally overrepresented in questions we get from the audience. Compared to Twitter, almost none from Facebook, quite a few from Twitter, a truckload from Instagram, despite the followers almost being the exact reverse on those accounts. So I don't know what it is, but there you go. Instagram, Instagrammers, Instagram I. What, what's, a, what's the plural of Instagrammer? Is that just Instagrammer? Insta something. Uh. Instagrammers, lots of Instagrammers, much Instagrammer. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) The first Instagrammer, thank you for the question, is Glenn. Glenn says, hey, Scott and Doc, I've been listening to your weekly podcasts and I find them very informative with the information you and the Doc give. I started buying shares at the start of April and have diversified with about 13 shares so far. That's a pretty good start. Currently, I'm up about 18%. Well done. I'm starting to save a bit more money to buy some more but I'm unsure if I should wait in case there could be a drop. So many people are predicting one. Or should I bite the bullet and go all in? The four shares I'm currently looking at all for long-term holds till retirement, 30 years. And he mentions SKI, RFF, so SKI's spark infrastructure, rural funds, RFF, uh, BKI, I think it is, which is the um, BKL. Uh, it's either Blackmores or it's um, Brickworks Investment Company, I'm not sure. And wax, I don't even know that one. What would you and the doc do? Thanks for the great podcasts, Glenn. So first things first, mate. Uh, should Glenn wait for the downturn or should he jump in? Well, you could wait for the downturn that may not come, or it's, <laughs> uh, it's you know that, that's part of the problem with waiting for things, isn't it? So yeah, that's that's you know my my usual strategy. This is my stock answer, which is going to be different from I think your stock answer um, nah. is um, well, which is good. We, we have different opinions. Yep, yep, and, yep. Um, yep. No, what what my preferred strategy is to invest over a period of time. Even if I've saved a bit bit of money, I like to spread it out, and it's like it's a bit like dollar cost averaging into buying things that I want to buy. Um, and that just gives makes me mentally happy about yeah. able about being able to sort of deal with um, you know volatility and, and that's mm. what I have always done I don't worry about what the market is specifically doing uh, I look at companies and then I just invest or even if I have some money right now I don't invest all of it at one go I, it's just mm. I, I've just never done that mm. I don't feel comfortable doing it and uh, you know, so that's that's my thing. Everybody has their thing. So whatever their thing is, um, I think people should do that because that enables them to deal with investing sort of over the long term. Nice. No, I have a similar like you. You are right, mate. My stock answer is different, but it's kind of the same, right? So my, my stock answer is there is a there is a theoretically, um, academically, mathematically, you know. Um, uh, optimal strategy and there is an uh, emotionally psychologically optimal strategy they're not always the same thing 
And as I've always said, the strategy you should follow is one that you're psychologically attuned to because it makes you more likely to stick with the plan. So no issues with Doc's approach. Many people want to do that, feel better about doing that. I need to go out of here and I would absolutely heartily endorse it. Um, if you are someone who though believes that stock markets go up over time and therefore mathematically you're better off being invested earlier rather than later, which is me. Um, I'm, I'm more than happy. In fact, I've done that. I've, done, I've invested lump sums you know, on, on a single day in some cases because they just went, okay, I've got the money. I want to invest it. Uh, that's just my, my personality and my, my, my temperament. So whichever one you are, whichever one works for you, Glenn, then we would say run with that one. Doc, um, any of those companies, they don't strike me as companies that you're, uh, you're in love with, those, those businesses I call them. Any, you have a view on any of them by chance? Well, those let me say those are not the type of companies I invest in. So um, <laughs> they're not, are they? those are not. They're not really like. I mean, I think so. Some of them are recommendations and are different. So it's, again, it just depends really on the investor, yeah. right? If if yeah. you're a little bit, you know, you know, more balance focused or you're a little bit income focused, then some yeah. of those could be. Uh, I'm 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 <laughs> okay with uh, you know lopsided returns from companies, and I'm also okay with. Uh, uh, with no income uh, in the interim, right? So these are not my yep. companies, but yeah. <laughs> um, look, I don't have a strong view on any of it. It is actually BKI, not Blackmore. So BKO is a Brickworks investment company uh, run by Tom Milner, who is the son of Robert Milner. Uh, Brickworks, of course, being the I think it's called BKI now. I don't think it's called Brickworks Investments. It used to be. Um, Robert Milner, of course, runs both Salpats and Brickworks. So that that's that one. Uh, Wax is the Wilson Asset Management Research um, business. So th- different ones there. These are these are pretty conservative options, Glenn. Pretty you know straight up and down stuff. Um, I again, we can't give you personal advice, by the way. Neither Doc or I to any of our listeners or answer any of our questions. So we, these are all general thoughts. What you personally should do, man. I don't. I wouldn't probably go with any of them. Quite honestly, not because I hate them all, just because they wouldn't they wouldn't be at the top of my list. So for what it's worth, Glenn, sorry to disappoint you, mate. Um, I think they're a better idea. In fact, if you want to get BKI, I'd, I'd go Salt Pats directly personally. Um, Jeff Wilson's a good guy, does, has done a good job. Wilson Asset Management's fine. Uh, I tend to prefer, though, ETFs over listed investment companies just because I think you're paying low fees and getting broader diversification. Spark, it leaves me a bit cold, no, ton, no, no pun intended. And Rural Funds is interesting but has had some decent short-seller interest recently and some concerns. Now, it is, it is a, a stock we own at Motley Fool Everlasting Income. So, um, you know, I, I'm talking about both sides of math to some degree, but I want to give you the, the actual reality of that information. There's no guarantee that the short sales aren't right. I don't think they are, but they could be. Um, so, yeah, look, I would... Uh, those, given those sort of companies, I'd probably end up going sole pats, stock, and I probably would go on ETF, quite honestly, rather than, rather than those four. Any additional thoughts? Oh, no, I really have nothing to add on that. Nice one. All right, next question comes from Tyler. Hi, Scott and Doc. I have a question for the mailbag. Tyler, you've come to the right place. My question is on the current valuation of Webjet. Now, this is a question that's a couple of weeks old because we do get a lot of questions. As of today, which is the 27th of May, Webjet is back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, market cap, sorry, is back to pre-COVID levels, which seems insane to me. I read the cap raising represented 50% of new shares on issue, which would mean investors got diluted one for one. Does this mean, then mean for Webjet to get back to previous highs, it essentially needs to do double and that the price it's trading at today of 440 would actually be representative of $8.80 if it weren't for the dilution. Am I thinking about this the wrong way? I know there must be missing something, as I've seen by recommendations. Just heard yourself and Mark, and this is, this is to me, on the call. So uh, to unpack that a little bit, I, I appear every fortnight or so on Ausbiz, the new streaming television channel run by the old uh, Sky News business people. And I was on with Mark Morland from Team Invest. We both said it was a buy. So that's the, hence the point. I'm looking forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on this as I'm struggling to get my head around it. Hashtag 
get Doc on Insta. Tyler, if you include the hashtag, you'll always have your question asked on the on the podcast. So thank you very much. I'm not sure, Doc, that the market cap of Webjet has got anywhere near back to its original, despite the dilution. I don't think that's right unless depending on what price you take. I mean, I suppose maybe hit $8.80 on the way through at some point, but the reality is it's, it's kind of pre-crisis highs um, were much, much higher. I think it got 15 bucks at one point, which would mean even on a one full dilution, $7.50 would be the equivalent. So, Tyler, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess, you know, it depends on what price you choose, but if you took the previous highs, um, you, they're nowhere near. They're probably still a gain of 70 or 80% off getting back to that level. So just to, just to, to flesh that out a little bit. But it is an absolutely right question, Doc, which is, for the company to end up being, you know, if the company gets back to the same size at a total business level, there's twice as many shares, so you're only going to get half the share price. If you want to get your shares back to the same price per share, company's actually going to double its market cap, which is a tough ask for a company that's currently not even really operating. Yeah, so I agree with everything he said. Uh, I think what he's basically alluding to is, you know, in the previous year, sort of the share prices, you know, was somewhere over the last one year, roaming around the eight to nine dollar mark. Um, if you know, if the share price right now is four dollars fifty, mm-hmm. um, then effectively it's like the nine dollars of the of the previous. Correct. Correct. Uh, yeah. So I think that's what he's referring to. Of course, it's not Fair close enough. to the fifteen dollar, which was you know the, the high or whatever twenty dollars, eighteen dollars it was before. Um, right. I, I think the dilution is actually a little bit more than 100%. I think the dilution was more like 110% or something like that. So that's right. uh, as far as I remember. Um, so yeah, so like, I mean, markets are the markets, they do something. Um, <laughs> uh, um, yes, so in my view is that it's extremely hard for Webjet to be its former self. Mm-hmm. Um, largely because it's going to take a long time for, again, uh, I think it's going to take a long time for travel to normalize. Um, and and then for them right. to take share or market share, they're going to have to compete with other bigger behemoths, which have not had uh, significant dilutions, you know, changes to the board seat and so on. I think it puts them in a weaker position relative to um, uh, many of the larger competitors that are in the market. Um, so and and I think they still have a debt overhang. They still have lots of issues with around um, how much cash they need to maintain on their balance sheet. Um, and, and things like that. So th- there is an absolute possibility that somewhere down the lane that they're going to have to do further dilution. Uh, mm. I wouldn't die. You know, that's what I think. Um, mm. So I, th- I think he's thinking about it absolutely the right way um, he, that, you know, the company has to do a lot more now, I guess, to get back to that level. Um, mm. However, I think the, th- the thing to keep in mind, if it does get back to that, you know, if it does... Somewhere close to that, then you know maybe there's some upside there because you could you could argue that well, it gets back. It needs to do double, but if it doesn't to get back to the similar level, uh, which which is what your you know his his contention is that you know nine dollars is equivalent to let's say four dollars fifty right now. Yeah. But yeah. it if it doesn't double, if it does you know you know say half of that, maybe you can get back to seven fifty or something like that. So, I mean, maybe that's the way to think about it. Um, mm. As I've said previously, you know, I'm not a fan of, uh, you know, to me, like it's a distressed asset play, Webjet right now. Um, in, in that, or it's like a distressed, it's not really a distressed asset, a, you know, uh, but it's like that, you know, it's it's a turnaround play. Mm. It's a, it's, it's not, 
I think it's not a growth play anymore in my you know it used to be a growth play in the day then something happened and it no longer uh, I think as I have said many times before it has exposed the lack of balance sheet flexibility of some companies um, you know poor balance sheet management on if, yeah. for many companies so, so I think that's the thing um, yes yeah, so you know we used to own uh, it was on hold on EO we sold it uh, we advised to sell again largely because it doesn't fit with our mandate or our style of investing as in you know we're looking for growth you know um, you know strong growth companies companies which you know are going to own the future uh, sort of thing or have the potential to own the future so, sort of thing so yeah but that's that's my view so I think his basic line of thinking is absolutely correct Nice. I am going to take a different view, unsurprisingly, because it still remains a buy for us at Share Advisor. So, uh, one of these opportunities for uh, for Alice to hear a different perspective on the same company. Uh, and uh, look, the thing is, I actually agree completely with Doc's points. So, the, which is, well, hang on, how is that possible? The answer is, at least in my mind, I could be completely wrong. Um, the the opportunity for um, so here's the thing: it, it, you're exactly right. It would have to get back to that price to be worth its previous price. And sorry, you. I mean, a, a questioner, Tyler. Um, what I would say, Tyler, is it doesn't really matter what happened in the past, right? It, it, other than in the sense of evaluating quality. So the question really is, and I've said this before in different contexts. Some people like to think about their portfolios as if they're rebuying it every single day. So if you cash, cash at your portfolio at three fifty nine yesterday, assuming the trading market was trading, it's a Sunday now, so it's not yesterday but Friday, and buy everything back on Monday morning, what would you buy? Now the the rational answer, if not we're not all rational, the rational answer would be. Those companies, I think, has the, have the best chance of growing from this point. Now, if if Webjet fell from eighteen to what was it two thirty or something, Doc? It's, it's worst point, something like that. Um, it, that, that. That's terrible, right? Absolutely terrible. But if you'd have cashed out everything you owned at two dollars thirty Webjet, your only question would be: Should I buy Webjet at two thirty, or should I buy something else? Now, I'm not saying Webjet should have necessarily been the one you bought. What I am saying is, it doesn't really matter what the past is, right? You've got a certain shareholding value in Webjet now. Call it a thousand bucks worth of Webjet shares. You could sell those thousand dollars and buy another thousand dollars of something else, or you could sell them and buy back the Webjet shares. The only question is what happens from here, and so I think to that, from that perspective, um, if you believe eight eighty was by the way a high price, then yes, at four it's currently four fifty or so, it is effectively at the same value as a total company as it was at eight eighty. And if you think eight eighty was expensive, then absolutely sell now because on a per share basis, um, you know that that's the equivalent of four forty. It's trading above that, so you should sell. If you think as I do, and I actually disagree with Doc a little bit in terms of not not what it's done in the past, but its potential. I think the web beds business in Europe, in particular, but also the webjet business here in Australia, has potential to go back to growth and continue to be larger. I see no reason why the dynamics in the past need to be necessarily any different. And Webbed, Webbeds was doing something well, doing something very well, getting really good growth. Now maybe maybe it never goes back to that. Maybe the market changes. Maybe dynamics change meaningfully. And if those happen, then of course Webbeds is is not going to get back to its previous growth. Now I'm not saying it's going to go back to its $80 share price because, as you rightly say, that's the equivalent of $9 today. It have to be twice as big to get back to that. And for a business not operating at all or hardly operating at all, that's really unlikely in the short term. But I do think that if the underlying basis of the you know a well-respected, well-known, well-liked travel agent here in Australia and a high-quality aggregator in Europe continues to be the case, and I think there's no reason to expect it will be different. I'm happy to buy at today's price and share in whatever upside comes from this. Now, if it goes from 450 to nine, okay, it's still half its previous price, but it's a double from here, and that's really all that matters. So yeah, we all want to be made whole. We all want to have higher share price than we bought in, but you've got to take that out of your mind. It doesn't really matter what you paid for the shares. The only thing that matters is what happens from here. And so that's why I would say I, I'm a buyer on Webjet because I think there's a decent chance, not a certainty at all, 
but a decent chance it's able to recover some of that growth potential it had in the past. And if it does, I think even at today's price of 450, which is a pre-split price of nine dollars, I think there's plenty of upside left for Webjet as a business. Doctor, you're right to reply. Um, no, like I mean, I, I think you're, I think you're, the way you're looking at it is is fine. The only distinction I make is. Um, if I take the view that I want to look at this business today, then this is not, as I said, like this is not a business I would buy. Um, and I use that argument for selling, you know, I look at the business and say, well, yeah, sure. you know, I don't know. Um, again, I said, I think the balance sheet is still a question mark in my view. Yeah, I agree um, with that. And, and if the balance sheet is question mark, there's more dilution possibility. Um, there is no, we don't know what the future forward growth is. And, and in the longer yeah. there is delay for the forward growth, that puts more pressure on the dilution, dilution mm-hmm. effect impacts the earnings so it's in my mind uh, if I have to buy st- this is not a stock that will be on my top five list for example if it's not in my top yeah, five list well why do it you know why do I want to buy it um, mm-hmm. but yeah but I take a point that you know if, if things go well for a webjet this you know could be a nine dollar stock at some point so you know you right, could right. effectively double your money um, maybe you wanted to think differently if you hold the stock and how you want to proceed with it versus if you are looking at to buy it afresh maybe that's th- th- there's a distinction there um, uh, I'm not sure but yeah uh, I mean I, I respect the opinion you have and I think uh, um, and you might very well be right oh wrong and that's that's it that, and that's why this is you know these are tough situations right this is you know, neither doctor nor I know what the future holds. We're, we're, we're looking at the same set of facts and, and happy to put our chips in different places. And, that, and that's that's investing, right? So that's um, hopefully a good, a good way of describing a different approach to the same situation and give you some different insights. That was a really good question. Uh, doc, the next question we've got comes from Shannon. Shannon says, hi, Scott and Doc. Long-time listener. Love the podcast. Keep up the informative pod. We will. Thank you. I'm a beginner investor. And I would like to know, in this current climate, why would a company buy back shares? How does this affect the stock now and into the future? I own this, there was a stock that was mentioned. I own the stock and would like to understand why this has been done. Thanks, lads. Hashtag hashtag get doc on Insta and handle at the Red Panty Investor. If you don't understand that reference, then go back a couple of weeks to the Red Panty Investor, which is Doc's new Twitter handle, apparently. Uh, sorry, um, uh, Instagram handle. All right, mate, uh, buying, back, buying back shares. So we talked about dilution where Webjet had to raise a whole lot of money and dilute itself. Buying back shares is kind of the reverse. Yeah, so like... <laughs> Just like we would try to sort of value a company, a company could also value itself. And if the company believes that its share price or its valuation as reflected by the share price is low, then there's a value to buying back shares, right? I mean, Mm. what you do is you basically reduce the, the free float of the company by buying back shares. And effectively, that means that those people who keep owning the shares of the company have a larger pie of the shares. Effectively, that means the earning per share that is it goes up, and you know, and if that's done, if if that's done well over a period of time, it can actually be a good wealth creator, uh, because mm. those people who are thinking long term are benefiting from the shrinking share base by mm. virtue of the earning earnings per share going up, and um, yeah, so uh, I think it it works well if the company is undervalued, um, and if you know you have good capital allocators at the helm of the ship i don't know what specific company she was talking about here um but yeah like i mean again the answer is it really depends Mm-mm. i the the, the company was simic by the way the um the, the industrial company the um 
uh, contractor. I, I wasn't. I, I didn't, didn't exclude it for any, any reason other than just to avoid the distraction. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna partly agree with or completely agree with Doc. What I'm gonna warn you about, Shannon, is the reality about the way companies tend to do this. And generally speaking, when you look at the research, and I haven't got any directly in front of me, but the, the, the general research view is that companies tend to buy back their stairs badly. So to Doc's point, yep. When they're, you know, if I said to you, hey. If you give me 80 cents, I'll give you as many dollars as, as I've got, you, you know, per dollar. You give me as many 80 cents as you can find, right? Because you're buying a dollar for 80 cents. Now, that's what companies are hoping to do when they're buying back shares. Saying, hey, my, my shares are so cheap, I can give the market 80 cents and get a dollar worth of value. Why would I not do that? And I completely agree. The problem is that historically, <laughs> companies tend to buy back their shares at high prices rather than low prices. So, in, in, in again, not, not universally. There are obviously examples and exceptions. But generally speaking, a lot of companies end up buying back at, they're simply not great capital allocators. And I think if you're if you're running a, let's just pick a, um, a random example without, without wanting to try and name names. If you're, if you're running a supermarket store, right? You're the CEO of Woolworths or Coles. The chance that you are a diet in the wall, high class, high quality capital allocator who's really, really great at valuing businesses, it's probably reasonably low. Now, I don't mean any discredit to the, the gentleman running those two businesses right now, and it could be anybody. Um, so the question would be, do you really want your company trying to work out whether their shares are well-valued? The, the track records are just woeful, absolutely woeful. So while the, the idea of a buyback is fantastic, I completely agree with Doc, I am always a little bit mindful that companies tend not to buy back at great prices. So the, the, the theory breaks down when it's not practiced well. The other thing I would say is it's a really, really simple way of companies also juicing their returns, right? If you can reduce the share count by 10%, your earnings per share goes up by 10%. So you obviously take your earnings, you divide by the number of shares. If you reduce the bottom number, the earnings per share goes up. But if you're a CEO who's incentivized to grow earnings per share, if you borrow some money from the bank, you buy back some shares, hey, presto, I've delivered a 10% increase in EPS. I'm a genius, I get my bonus. Everyone's happy, except you know, you, the question remains, hey, I used debt for that, was it smart? I used cash for that, could I have used the cash in some other way, which didn't necessarily grow EPS, but was a better value, a creative play for shareholders, a whole lot of reasons. So I, I, again, I'm a little bit cynical. I was a little bit cynical on, on Friday, I'm gonna be a bit cynical again now and say, the theory is great and practice well is fantastic. The possibility or probability that it's being done at, um, at prices that maybe don't represent value is unfortunately too high. So I don't know about the CIMIC price. I haven't looked at it. I'm just always a little bit skeptical when companies do it. I don't necessarily believe most of them they're trying to be uh, trying to try and mess with us or screw with us as shareholders. But I do worry about the general ability across not just the ASX, but any, I mean, the same is true in the US. Listed companies generally aren't very good at assessing their own value. And if that's true, then you want to be a little bit careful they're not wasting your capital when they're buying back shares. Anything more, Doc? Oh, I think I think those general observations are all true. The next Insta question is from another female listener, Emily. Emily, you know we love female listeners. You know we love questions from our female listeners. Thank you very much for asking the questions. Of course, we love our male listeners as well. But um, you know, women are massively underrepresented in investing, so we, we very much appreciate our, our female listeners. And please tell your friends. Um, again, all of you tell your friends. Happy to have more male listeners as well. But really, really cool to have more female listeners taking a role in their own financial futures. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. It just simply isn't done very much. And so when we can redress that balance, that's a huge, huge thing. All right, Emily says, hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. Thank you, mate. Love the banter and tangents. 
Is Emily your sister or my sister, Doc? I'm not sure. She must be someone's mother, I'm not sure. Um, she, she says, I don't have any phrasing to granny undies in my question. That's probably good. So not sure if it will be considered. Now, will Emily trust us? Granny panties aren't, aren't obligatory. Just a question on something I haven't heard you guys talk about before. With QE going on around the world from central banks, the safe haven for storing the value of wealth has been gold. She says, will Bitcoin take over gold? to be the new normal value storage in future. Thanks again for the insights from Brilliant Minds. Not sure about that, Emily, but thank you. Full on, Emily. All right, Doc, so gold we talked about on Friday being a store of value often or um, some sort of safe haven asset. And Emily's referring to those kind of investors who see that. And she's saying, well, gold's a thing. Bitcoin's also a thing. Will Bitcoin take the role of gold when it comes to that safe haven asset? You know, I don't actually have a view on that, <laughs> unfortunately. So, okay. I, I I don't know. Like, I mean, one of the things I f- find with Bitcoin is it's hard to... I can't think of a world, right now at least, where you, you government cede control to something like Bitcoin. Um, so, it's hard for me to see how Bitcoin... Bitcoin is highly... You know, if something is very volatile, I don't know how that can be a... Uh, <laughs> store value, yeah, right. right? I mean, actually, yeah, yeah, one of the things yeah. about store value is that it has to be less volatile. Mm-hmm. Um, it should mean mean something. Yeah. Right now, to, to me, Bitcoin is a speculative asset largely because it's very volatile. So people are trying to make money. It's like, you know, it's a day trading instrument in that sense, if you can. Yeah. And so over time, though, I mean, so let's, let's imagine a future where Bitcoin is more stable because it just becomes a, you know, right now people are speculating what its future value might be. At some point, mm. if it becomes a you know a more stable asset because people will come some come to some sort of you know view or understanding or agreement or just 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 things settle down a little bit, uh, does a volatile Bitcoin oh, sorry does, that, does not a less volatile Bitcoin uh, replace gold? Do you think it could? I mean, again, I don't I don't know. Like it could, but uh, like people like gold because it's something physical. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. gold has value because it's the whole point about gold is physicality, right? Yes. The whole yeah. problem with uh, uh, money yeah. is it's it's it can be think, thought of as vaporware, right? It's like mm-hmm. can be created. Out of thin air. <laughs> so, so part of part of the problem, uh, I guess, the question is part of the problem with the QE is I don't like QE because QE is creating all this money flow. I like gold because gold is a fixed asset and you can't gr- mm-hmm. create gold out of thin air. Um, there is that attractiveness to to Bitcoin in that sense that there's a finite supply of Bitcoin. Mm. Um, so maybe, but again, like, I mean, it's still a, a virtual asset in, in, on, in the other sense, right? I mean, it is still created. It's still mined, uh, maybe at, at a much lower rate. So, yeah, I mean, it has a lot of similarities in that sense to gold, but I, I don't know. Like, I'm not... I'm not a bit. I'm a bit. I'm ambivalent on Bitcoin, mm-hmm. um, largely because I still don't see. I almost think like digital currency is going to have a second wave, and Bitcoin okay. is wa- is wave one. And um, you know, like the, I almost think of Bitcoin as the AOL equivalent of the internet, and and there's probably going to be a, a real. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not to not to say that the AOL is not real. I mean. You know, like AOL, AOL uh, you know, American Online Limited was probably version one of yeah, how right. the internet would look, and yeah, it's really right. the version two and version three that has survived. Yeah, so okay. I, I, that's my 
that's really a gut answer uh, you know and gut answers are not that good i don't have a technical <laughs> reason for believing that um but that's what i think nice i like it um emily i think it's a great question i think you know so I guess a couple of thoughts. I said on Friday, I don't think people should invest in gold. I don't think people should invest in Bitcoin either, really, um, for, for either of those purposes, either for asset appreciation or for store of value. I just don't think the asset, I don't think anyone needs that asset class. Well, I wouldn't say nobody. Most people don't need that asset class for any good reason. There's no reason to prefer, uh, well, paying for volatility protection is an expensive way to sleep at night. I and mean, if you need it, you need it. For most people who can learn to, you know, love the bomb as they as they say in the James Bond thing um, then you you want to you, you want to try and embrace that rather than trying to pay to remove it because it simply reduces your returns will Bitcoin be the new gold I don't think so um, I, I think it's possible I think it's now an alternative so I think maybe it actually takes away from some of gold's luster to, to again use a terrible pun um, the, the the chance that you know people abandon gold for Bitcoin, like look, it's more transportable. That's useful. Um, you can't, well, in theory, you can't steal it. Again, assuming you have the, the, the key, the, the password uh, for your Bitcoin wallet. Um, you know, there are there are some reasons why I can imagine people like it. You can move it across borders. You can hide it away. Um, there's, you know, you can't be identified as owning it. Those are kind of quasi benefits if you hold gold and if you like that that improved benefit right as doctors are the problem is gold has a basic value because we know how much it costs to mine and so at some level the very basic level that you know the, the growing population which will in, which will lead to some sort of you know in theory just growing demand on some sort of you know solid state basis if you have more people and you know the average gold demand per person or per thousand people is x you can assume it goes up so maybe we have to mine more gold you're not going to mine it unless you get more than a certain dollar value for it so it kind of that sets a you know, again, never a hard floor because things can always trade below their cost. But you know, you have some basis for a price. Is Bitcoin worth one cent, a thousand dollars, a million dollars, a trillion dollars? There's no, there is literally no basis other than the, the cost of mining, which you know, mining in air quotes. Um, so there's some basis for saying it might be worth something at some point. The problem is it's also part currency, and so whatever it hasn't really sorted itself out, it's really, really hard to know. So like Doc, there's a long way of saying I don't really know. I actually think it's a speculation you don't need to make. Um, for long-term listeners, they will remember I do actually own some Bitcoin, uh, which is on a in a wallet, which I think is on my phone, which I think I remember the password to, but I'm not sure, and I haven't looked at it for years. So <laughs> I bought a hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin. Oh man, Doc, it must have been three years ago, I think, just to be able to talk about it and kind of be part of it and keep an eye on it. I literally haven't opened that Bitcoin wallet in more than twelve months. It's probably even longer than that, I think. Um, I have no idea what it's worth today. I don't know what Bitcoin's worth. I think it's you know it's, it's an interesting idea. It may well replace gold at some point. I don't think you have to have a view. And if it does replace gold, I don't think it's going to destroy the value of gold anytime soon. There's going to be plenty of time to make a change. So I wouldn't be speculating on it at all. I think it's, you know, it's a lotto ticket, right? You can buy a lot of tickets if you want, but the chances of winning are pretty low. Um, you just don't have to play that game. Sometimes it's worth just saying, you know what, that's in the too hard basket. I'll move on to things that I feel better about, have a better idea on, and frankly, can have a reasonable expectation of a positive future return from it. I don't think Bitcoin really meets any of those criteria. Let's go to a question from Juan. Juan says, hi, Captain. Hope we are getting closer to getting Doc on Insta. I don't know yet. I'm starting to look for the next monster and have identified a couple of companies with the potential to become 10 baggers. I know you don't give personal advice, but would love to know your opinion on these two companies. They are very small with limited coverage and low liquidity. Uh, Appreciate your comments. Full on. Thanks for everything. The companies, Doc, are Pay Group, PYG, and Schroll, S-C-H-R-O-L-E, Schroll Group, S-C-L. Do you know either of those two, mate? Uh, yeah, I know a little bit about Pay Group. I don't know anything about the other company. 
What can you tell us about pay group, mate? Well, not not much. Like I mean, so it's it's like pay group is a bit you know the closest analogy I can think of. It's a bit like ADP, like you know it processes payments. Okay, so um, payroll processor. A payroll processor. Um, nice. So basically, you know, you're outsourcing the payroll processing job to mm-hmm. to a company. Um, I believe if it's the right company I'm thinking about, and if I'm not confused, it's a company that's actually um, uh, founded in Singapore right. and uh, and listed here. So it's an interesting company uh, in that sense. So here's the thing, right? I mean, it, one of the things I like to remind people, and myself actually, I, I remind myself this every mm-hmm. time because you know we, we fish in that pond, is just because a company is small doesn't necessarily mean it can become big, right? In fact, yeah, right. small companies often get crushed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because it's it's easy to crush. Uh, yeah, because it's easy to crush. Like you know, like how many times do humans crush an ant, right? right it's that right, that right, phenomena. Right. So I mean, if you're talking about competition, then there's big ADP. There's many other competitors mm. like that. There'd be huge behemoths. Um, ADP is automated data processing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's basically the leader. Uh, in that in this this space, so so I like to remind myself of that. Uh, that said, oft, often also what happens is any area that has been uh, you know that's got a large number of behemoths uh, or it's got behemoths demo- dominating it, that tends to after you know the stasis after a while what happens is there's no there's no the lack of innovation or the speed of innovation decreases things become slow then they stagnate that creates an opportunity for other small players to come and disrupt right you know take a new take so I don't know whether pay group is that company um, it, uh, yeah, I've looked at it a few times but it has not made mm. my cut yet to be a recommendation <laughs> to extreme opportunities so um, yeah that's all I have to say about that Nice, mate. Thank you. I know nothing about it, so I'm going to literally move on to the next question so we can add some more value somewhere else. But, Juan, thank you for the question, mate. Good one. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Motley Fool money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. This one's from Jack. Jack says, hey, Scott and Doc. Thanks so much for answering my previous question and also dedicating the time to do an extra episode weekly to help everyone like me out there generate a little more wealth. Well, Jack, we're doing our best. And of course, if you are generating some wealth, feel free to throw us some money. No, I'm kidding. You don't have to give us any money, mate. This is We're doing it for free. Uh, he says, I have another question. It's about Doc service, extreme opportunities. I've heard of that one. I am wondering if Doc recommends having a minimum financial backing before subscribing. I am a subscriber, by the way. I joined because I love the strategy EO invests with. However, I have a problem. I've realized I don't believe I actually have enough money to invest in all the allocations. And I know how important that is, being that the model works on a 4 out of 10 success rate. I'm just concerned I'll purchase the losing assets and none of the winners. I assume most of the your younger listeners could be in a similar boat to me and just wonder if there is a financial backing you recommend before starting with EO, which is in brackets, meaning a certain dollar amount available to invest with each month. Thanks again, Jack. Now, I'm going to actually... Hold Jack's question for a second, mate, and say, what the heck? Four out of 10 doesn't sound very exciting. Why would I want to join a service that only has a four out of 10 success rate as the aim? Not, not even the actual reality. You're hoping to be wrong more than right. What is going on at EO? 
Yeah, so like, I mean, you know, this is this is not the general typical six out of ten sort of investing strategy. <laughs> it's really um, not. <laughs> uh, and, and what we're trying to do is, again, because as we said, we, we typically fish. It's not that we always fish in the small side. Mm. We have some bigger companies that we recommend. But because we fish smaller companies, we realize that the smaller companies can fail uh, more often than the big ones, right? Right, uh, right, right. But... But if a smaller company succeeds, if you get a 10-bagger, then a 10-bagger effectively can wipe out five, you know, it can wipe out five losers, right? And right. yet give you enough gains, right? Because you still have another five, <laughs> five, <laughs> five times of increase to help yeah. you out, right? Yeah. So, um, so that's the strategy. Strategy is really to find some big winners. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what we, the other thing that we do in the service is we don't shy from re-recommending stocks. And what that means is if we know a company is doing well or can do continue to do well over a period of time, mm. we might have mm. recommended it when it is say a hundred million dollar company. We will not shy away from re-recommending it if it is a three hundred million dollar company at that point, and you have right. three bagged already, right? Yeah. We've done that a, a few times in the service, mm. uh, and that's worked reasonably well for us. Um, and then I'll, I'll point our largest winner today is a four bagger. Um, you know that stock was recommended. Uh, again, I never expected it to rise this quickly. I'll always preface right, that. Right, right. Uh, sometimes the results that we see surprises myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, and, and, and I, I said that because you know, again, nobody can predict. I can't predict. You know, and, and all credit. And I always say, you know, credit goes to Kevin, and everything. Everything that is wrong is my my doing. <laughs> so, um, uh, so like you know, the one company that we recommend is a four bagger mm. right now. Mm. It is recommended only in December of 2018, right? It is right. uncommon to expect shares to give you, like in a year and a bit, a four-bagger. Yeah, but that four-bagger now gives you the right to lose, in this period of time, the right to lose probably twice, mm-hmm. <laughs> 100%, and you still be okay. <laughs> Right. right. Um, the second biggest winner is like a three bagger right now, and mm-hmm. this was recommended in October of 2017, so a little longer, right? And we've recommended, you know, we've done a few double, like you know, double recs and triple recs, and sometimes mm-hmm. we have not actually done it when we should have done it because you know uh, our our judgment got the better of us, I guess. Okay. Um, so, so, the, so I think the strategy works if you can find those big winners, right? And it, thus far, we have found some. Uh, so that's the number one thing to keep in mind. However, the flip side is exactly as the question was asked. It does mean that you have to spread your bets across more companies. Right. That you have to. If you're just going to buy one or two stocks, EO is not your service. Yeah. It's just Actually, if you're just going to buy one or two, then really what... I would say that that doesn't work for any particular service and you can't use this, that service's return as representative for your returns. You yeah. can't say that, you know, that service's returns, why am I not replicating it? Because you're not replicating that service's strategy. In that case, what you're doing is you're basically picking from a bunch, from a pool and you're doing your own investing. Um, right. So that's that's that. If you want to replicate your strategy, you really need to buy, you know, 15, 20 companies is sort of what I think you need to buy um, yeah. to sort of replicate uh, that strategy. So you, right. Then the, the other thing is that how much money do you like, you know, that's the first personal question that depends on a lot of different things. But you want, the rule of thumb I use is you think about how much you're paying in brokerage, right? So if you can buy, say, $1,000 of stock and you're yeah. paying $10 on brokerage, yeah. that's acceptable, right? Um, mm-hmm. If if you're not buying, buying $500 of stock and you're paying $10, it, it 
kind of tends to become not so acceptable at that point. Yeah. You know, because you're friction. Gets expensive, there's, there's right? Lot, yeah. yeah, it gets that friction is coming into play. So, yeah. so you know, over and uh, here's the other thing I'd like to point out: you don't need all that money up front, right? Because you know, mm-hmm. we make a recommendation every month. We have Best Buy Nows, uh, Best mm-hmm. Buys Now every month, which basically looks at the scorecard and says, "Well, here are some ideas that you can look at uh, yeah. to from the existing scorecard to buy." So, if you are going to buy over a period of you know several months, even over a year. And put just a thousand dollars towards each recommendation. That's sort of what I think mentally. That's my framework um, yeah. for EO. But again, that's my framework. As, as I always like to point out, my framework can't be your framework. You have to take mm-hmm. what I do or my framework and adapt it to your needs. That's the most important thing because you need to adapt it in a way that's acceptable to you, so that you can actually continue to you know invest, right? And that's the most yeah. important thing. I like that, mate. I, I will. I'm going to add a couple of thoughts, just only to. I mean, look, it's your service, mate. You get to make the calls. I, I'm just going to say a couple of things to Jack. First is, if you're a young investor, mate, and you're building over time, I wouldn't personally like. I, I, I'm the last person to say pay too much in fees. Right? Like, I hate people charging too much in fees. Um, I've I've been on Twitter this morning <laughs> ranting about that, um, but. And it may be just about bias because it's our business, our service, right? But if you're going to join Doc Service and learn some stuff, buy some stocks, and make this a lifelong habit starting today or tomorrow or the day after, if you've got a smallish amount of money, the brokerage you pay today on that, the, the fees on the, the service, all that kind of stuff, I'm not entirely sure I would discourage you from doing it if the education is worth something, right? I mean, for, the, for we've talked about how cheap the service is. It's so bloody cheap, it, you know. Purely as an education device, if nothing else, plus this podcast, of course, um, it's worth something. And honestly, if you can get started, build a diversified portfolio. Even if you're paying two percent brokerage and paying ten bucks per five thousand five hundred dollars worth of trades, is it too much? Yeah. But if it means you will get to ten stocks, you learn a few things, you get some experience, you buy some more stocks, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want you to be discouraged from starting. I guess is my point, right? And if it's not with us, even if it's with somebody else, I don't really care. I mean, I do, but I don't. Um, you know, I, I, at this particular age, don't let the brokerage commission percentage be the determinant of whether or not you invest. The other thing about EO too is, yes, of course, we want to buy every single one, but not many members buy every 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 single one of our recommendations. And so, if you bought every second or every third one, again, you might you, will you miss out on some winners on the way through. Of course, you will. You miss out on some losers. Of course, you will. But again, if you follow the service for multiple years and Doc is as good as I think he is, there'll be plenty more winners coming down the pike, right? So, you know, I mean, he recommends 12 stocks a year. If you're going to be with him for eight years, that's 100 stocks you're going to be buying. Another eight years is 200 stocks. I mean, obviously the re-recommendations and stuff. Just just don't don't overthink it is probably my view. And again, whether it's with us or not, I don't, I don't mind. With anybody, as you're getting started, paying a little bit extra to get going, to get some momentum, to learn a few things, is possibly worth it if you think that line of reasoning makes sense for you so that's the only thing i wanted to add doc is it fair i think that's fair actually what you're speaking actually one of the things that maybe this helps for helps the new i was thinking i was just thinking back on my own investing style and its evolution so um early on i used to buy a lot more stocks and and the reason i used to buy a lot more stocks is i guess um it was a way of my way of diversifying my risk away because yeah, I felt right. you know I knew and over time you know you learn over time I think this is this is a point that Scott is trying to make and I think it's, it's an important one over time you learn a lot the more you do this the more you learn about yourself and that's very important right it also helps you learn about you know other businesses so you learn about business models you learn about business you continue to learn but you learn a lot about yourself and what works for you what doesn't work for you and it allows you to be more selective later on right yeah. so right now I don't buy a lot of stocks in fact you know I, I've probably been more concentrated right now than I've ever been but 
it has been a journey to that point, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so I think young investor actually has those advantages that you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if if I was twenty, I don't We're have the advantage. Yeah. Of, <laughs> exactly. I just don't have. I would. I would happy. Actually, what I know right now, if I could be twenty, I would, yeah. you know, happily be twenty uh, <laughs> <laughs> again. So, so, so that's the thing, uh, and and I think yeah, you're spot on about that. That you know, maybe it, it actually doesn't matter, uh, even if it's two percent the cost. I actually hate paying more for brokerage. It's it's just my yeah. thing. I, I do you really not do. like paying. <laughs> I really don't like paying. I don't like paying someone uh, for the fact that it's just going to cross <laughs> on the ether somewhere. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 but yeah, but I get the point. You know, even five hundred dollars <laughs> might work. So, yeah, I think you make some valid points. Here. Very valid. Nice, nice. Thank you, Jack. Good question, mate. Question from Nick, mate. First name only, Nick. All right, got it. Thank you for putting it at the top of the uh, message. Saves me making a mistake. Hi, guys. Love the show. Keeps me grounded through these times. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Washington H. Sol Pattinson, or SOL. One of your favorites, Captain. Now, Doc, I'm going to take a slight <laughs> break here. I'm going to make a, a, a little mini rant. I, I love you, Nick. Love you. You asked me about Sol, S-O-L. Now, I know, and you know, that's the code for Washington H. Sol Pattinson. And Doc is laughing right now because he also knows what I'm about to say next, which is I, I chip our team every good-naturedly every time they refer to a company by its ticker. Now, not because, you know, shorthand is – of course shorthand works. I call him Doc rather than Irban. He calls me Captain rather than Scott. Shorthands work. They are easy. They're useful. Absolutely all true. Investing is hard enough when you start to think about companies by their tickers because a ticker means a code on a screen. That means a share price or a chart or something. And the more we talk about that subconsciously, the less we think about the business. Now, some people listening are saying, well, of course we know that, Phillips. Don't don't treat us like children. Hey, guess what? I do the same thing. The more you talk about a company by its ticker, the less you think about – you just – it just, our brains work that way. It's just how they work, right? We know the ticker is a representation of the share price. That's how we think. I know Washington H. Sol Pattinson is a listed company. Of course I do. When I think about that, I think about the words, the name, the chemist, the, the management. It just, it, it's, a different, it's a different mental process. Now, again, some people are saying, well, I'm clever enough to avoid that. You might be an idiot, Phillips, but I'm not. I know what I'm doing. Just trust me when I say there is so much about psychology and the stuff we don't know, behavioral, you know, kind of psychology, behavioral finance. We just owe it to ourselves, do everything we possibly can to keep ourselves on the straight and narrow. Again, I'll recommend the Little Book of Behavioral Investing. If you haven't read it, please do. It's probably one of the best uh, the best underrated finance books. There's plenty of great finance books for other reasons. If you're, if you're, someone asked me for a list of underrated finance books, that one would be at the very, very top, I think. Little Book of Behavioral Investing. So yeah, bit of bit of a mini rant. Nick, love you. And, and I know you, not your fault not having to go at you. Just for everybody's sake, do yourselves a favor. Try to refer to those companies as companies and then business names. Call it Solpats if you want. Right? That Solpats still means the company. SOL, we all know, is the code. We start to think about the code, typing into a broker's website, all that kind of stuff. All right, done. Whew, I need a breath. I have read an interview with Robert Milner, chairman of Sol, or I'll say Sol Pattinson, Nick, on his outlook in the future. And he mentioned a strong outlook and faith on coal. Personally, I disagree with this on both the future and the concept. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Would this also mean that my thesis is broken and therefore sell? I've only held for about six months, so it hasn't been a strong six months either. Unfortunately not. Although I bought this for 25 years, not one, so I'd appreciate your thoughts. I'm going to start with you, Doc, because I I have a view, of course, as you would expect. Do you have a view on Solpats, coal, and what, what a broken thesis might look like? 
Ah, oh, so the core okay here is, don't, the, by the way. <laughs> is about the new haven thing, right? Yes, correct. So, uh, Solpats, good point, mate. Solpats owns a, like a majority stake in New Haven Coal. It's a listed coal company, obviously. Milner is saying, hey, we think New Haven Coal's got a bright future. Nick's saying, oh, I don't think so. And so he's asking, does that break the thesis? Um, so I don't... Okay, so uh, here's here's my problem. I think coal does not have a long, bright future, but... Mm-hmm. Um, but that's an overarching view I have about coal versus you know renewable energy and things like that, right? The mm. the issue might I think the important thing here would be, I guess, what's the price currently for the shares for New Haven, and you know what are they trading at, and is it at a discount and things like that? Mm. I actually have don't know that. Um, so it there could be that, for example, there is value there. Uh, again, like I mean, long term coal doesn't seem like an asset that we would need or want or mm-hmm. uh, desire. So, I mean, I, I agree with what he's saying there, but I mean, I don't know over about the valuation to have a view. So, you know, yeah, right. uh, I, I think one thing I do worry about is asset managers um, who hang on to, uh, this is my pet peeve. So, you know, asset managers who have a fantastic track record, but hang on to all the old norm expecting the old norm never changes now yeah, right. norms don't change for a long period of time but they do change slowly and i think if you know it's a leaky moat you know the moats become leaky over time things become you know so your your investment philosophy if it is not fluid enough to change over a period of time and you've been asset manager successful with 100 years of record but you stick to you know the 19th century model in the 20th century and the 20th century model in the 21st century i think that is problematic um, mm. for big asset so so that's my high level overarching view but i don't have a specific view on um, on salt paths or and call per se if that makes nice sense it does it does um so nick i've got a i've got a funny thing with this too right so um i remember we recommended salt pats for the first time it's at share advisor i want to say 2013 maybe i'm my my mind's it fuzzy doc I'm, I'm getting old um and at the time our, our then boss and current boss bruce jackson said to me hey you know to be kind of coal miners what the hell are you doing recommending salt pats who has a big coal exposure he didn't say it quite that bluntly but that's what he meant um and i love the question so my answer at the time was, I don't know enough about coal to know, but I know that I believe that the Milners will do the best job they possibly can for us. Now, does it mean they'll always be right? No, like any investor, including them, they'll be wrong from time to time. Are they wrong about New Hope? I don't know. No idea. Um, I have my own environmental views. I have my own um, climate change views, of course. Uh, I'm not shy on sharing those, by the way. I believe climate change is real, and I believe we are way too late taking action. So I'll make that, without being political, I'll, I'll take that policy view um, and, and put it on the record just so, to avoid any... Um, you know, people need to know that when I give my view on coal and salt pats, right? Because it does matter. If I was a denier or a, or a pro climate change or whatever, um, that that ideology may well influence my investment view. So it's it's worth disclosing. I excuse me. I, I don't expect coal to have a very bright future. I do expect that the Milners will be reasonably astute and open managers of capital. I can't imagine, although I could be wrong. The Milner's driving this thing to, the, to zero and just watching it die and die and die and die. At some point, as with any asset, I expect they'll, make, they'll sell it if they feel like they need to, if it's not worth holding. So remember, of course, that you know, the, the, you know, there's a price for everything and there's a, there's a value for everything and there's a buyer for everything at, at a given price. I don't know what will happen. In fact, Sopets were going to sell New Hope. They tried to sell New Hope 
Oh man, I want to say maybe 12 years ago now, Doc. Again, my, my date's getting fuzzy, but there was a time they actually had that stake on the market and they couldn't find a buyer. Now, in hindsight, they should have taken whatever price they were offered because the shares haven't done as well. It was about six bucks at the time, I think it's New Hope. Might be 240 or so now, I can't remember recently. Um, so it will fluctuate massively with the price of coal. I expect there would be a buyer at the right price and a seller at the right price. Um, I don't, I have a view, I wouldn't buy a coal miner directly because I don't have that expertise. But I'm happy to let the Milners have some rope in managing this business and managing that shareholding. Now that in the fullness of time might be folly, that might be naive, I might be just dead wrong. Uh, but I, yeah, it, this is one I would never buy a coal miner directly myself. I don't have the expertise and I don't believe in the long term future of it. But if I've got someone who knows the business better, who can make those decisions, um, and by the way, they are considered to be the best coal mine operator in the country, which gives them some degree of competitive advantage, even in a shrinking market, if that's what happens, I'm happy to give them some rope. So that, that's my view. Nick, to your point, is your thesis broken? Yeah, I reckon it is. If you, if you personally, if you can't stomach Solpat's owning coal, if you can't see a way that's profitable or successful, if you just don't want to own a coal miner, then absolutely, completely, you should do something different. And I think that would be very fair to say, my thesis is, you know, coal can't win. If coal is a meaningful proportion of Solpat's value and you think it's worth zero or something less than its current value, then you need to discount it by that amount. Now, I would say just quickly too, Doc, I won't, I won't ramble for too long. This is being broken is different from it being worth less. Now, if you think that, because Solpat is a conglomerate, right? New Hope is a part of that. It's a, it's a fraction, a proportion of the of the value. If your sign is a zero value and Solpat is still worth buying with New Hope as zero, then you can still buy it, right? You don't have to, um, I'm, trying to think of, I'm trying to think of a better example. Um, let's take Blackmores because I own shares in Blackmores as, as I do in Solpats. Um, let's assume you say, you know what? I think the vitamins thing is great but I think selling vitamin C is terrible. In fact, I think vitamin C is an awful thing. I don't think it's helping anybody gets a waste of money. No one should buy it. The question is, even if you're right about that and people are still buying vitamin C tomorrow, is the rest of Blackmore's product range worth keeping? You might have had a bad experience with Woolworths in your local Woolworths store, but if you're the only one and everyone else shops at Woolies, is that still worth keeping? So you're still gonna make that value judgment by saying, all of this put together, I think Solpats is worth X. Again, ethically, if you can't stand owning coal, then it's a very simple decision. It's not even a thesis question. It's just a, it's just an ethics or moral question, which is fine. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, but maybe I hope you hope it's worth half the current price, a quarter of the current price. In other words, it's still worth something. The salt pads still adds some value to that business. And if you believe that's worth something uh, between now and Judgment Day, then that should be part of your value assessment. I don't think you should say, well, I don't like one part of salt pads, therefore I don't like the whole company necessarily. You can do that. Of course, you can. But I would, I would encourage you to think about it as, uh, you know, one product line in a, in, a, in a manufacturing business or one store in a in a supermarket business. You know, gee, that Woolies, you know, my local my local Woolies isn't very busy. It's run terribly, and they're always out of stock. I'm going to sell Woolies. You could, but I'd encourage you to say, well, actually, if the rest of the Woolies are okay, then my one store isn't indicative. Any additional doc? I have nothing to add. Beautiful. A uh, question. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna do a very good job with this. I apologise in advance. The the the, the person's name is D O R J E. Say Doi Dori Doi. Do you have a Do you have a thought, Doc, on pronunciation on that one? Mm, no. I really apologise. I'm gonna say Dori. I apologise for getting that horribly, horribly wrong. Please feel free to correct me. Um, and again, I, I I desperately dislike getting pronunciations wrong because I don't want it to ever come across as a lack of care or interest. Um, I just haven't come across the name, so my apologies. Hi, Scott and Doc. I began my Extreme Opportunity subscription in December last year. I had a look at the scorecard, and there are a lot, quite a lot of stocks that are on buy recommendation. When Doc sends out a new recommendation each month, he gives us a buying instruction of what price to place an order at. Yet the stock price is now significantly higher than the recommended buying instruction, 
do I buy at market rates now? And he gives a couple of examples, which I'll keep for your members, Doc. And he says, thanks. So you made a recommendation. The price is now up. Is it too late? Yeah, so here, here's the, uh, I'll, I'll explain this more generally. So mm-hmm. uh, in on our scorecard, if, if, if I've got a recommendation, if you've got a recommendation as a buyer, what we're basically saying is that we, we believe that mm-hmm. from you know the current prices or around the current level, uh, current share price level, if you hold the shares for the long term, we typically say a minimum of three years, but I like to say five in extreme opportunities, then over right. that sort of five-year window, we think that this particular share at this particular price, if it is a buy, is likely to beat the market. So it's a market-beating investment from this point on, which means you can buy it at around the current price. Right. So that's the way we look at it. Now, what is the, the new recommendation? Every month we provide you an, a, a, a new idea, where, or an, I shouldn't say new idea. We provide you an idea which we think is our single best idea for that month that sort of explains or is... Uh, you know, satisfies the EO philosophy. Okay, mm-hmm. so the EO multi-bagger philosophy. If it, you know, and and, and when I say it's, it's the single idea, because it could be a re-recommendation, it could be a company that's already on the scorecard. So that's it's right, the idea right. that the idea that we like best for which you know exemplifies what EO means, and that's that's the idea that becomes our recommendation for that month. In addition, we also have something called Best Buys Now, which basically is a way of saying, looking at the scorecard, it's saying, well, if you wanted to add to, you wanted a shortlist from among our buys that are on the scorecard, mm-hmm. then here are you know two ideas plus our existing recommendation or, or the newest recommendation that you have got that you can add to. So we give you, you know, we basically filter down from the buy list uh, to two other ideas from that list, including our recent, uh, most recent recommendations, so that makes it three. So g- to give people some uh, hints as to, you know, if you wanted to, you know, choose from this list and things like that. So that's how we think about it. Um, the uh, the buy guidance that we give, I tend, to, you know, my f- philosophy there has been uh, give buy guidance on only those companies that are, you know, that have low liquidity. And the reason we give the buy guidance is um, if you don't give a buy guidance, then there's all, all, there, there could be a stampede of people trying to buy and just artificially pushes <laughs> up the price. We're just right. trying to manage. We don't want uh, stock prices to artificially go up because of a surge in demand on any particular day and only to see a retraction. So that yeah, just yeah. doesn't help the company. It doesn't help anyone. That's not the business we are in. Uh, we're not a pump and dump type of uh, you know shop, as some people would call it. We, we don't do that. We want so we, we really think about it long term. So we want to get, you know, if it's, a, if it's a low liquidity, we want people to gradually get in, which helps with, you know, having some tighter limits. If the company is liquid enough, we don't really provide a guidance. So the, the last recommendation, mm. the latest recommendation, without giving out the name, is liquid, <laughs> en- is liquid enough that we didn't, you know, say, you know, try to, you know, do this or do that because you, you can mm-hmm. buy, um, you know. So so that's, that's the rough guide. So that we have... There are different reasons for what we provide, but that sort of gives a basic framework. So, yeah, if it's a buy, then we do think that you know over the long term it should it should do well, be the market from that point on, um, and and therefore you can choose from that list. Nice, I like that, mate. Um, I'm, I didn't think that's perfect. Let's go to a question from Dave. Dave says, "Hi, Phil's loving the show. Thank you, mate." Recently signed up to Doc's EO advisory. Man, is, did anyone sign up to share advisor anymore, Doc? I does don't know, but, do that? I, I, doesn't sound but like I like it. the sound of people signing up to EO. <laughs> All right. I find the picks very uh, picks and info very exciting. Nice. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Uber. 
I had purchased these stocks not long after it floated, as I believed it was a potential high growth stock, as the company appeared to be a business as usual disruptor with potential massive market to capture. I know this doesn't necessarily fit with an EO advisory given its size, but would love to hear your general thoughts full on. If this is also further to the above, I would love to hear a general discussion around buying IPOs. I've been relatively surprised that Uber has basically been unchanged in share price outside of COVID, given its potential. I'm now concerned they may look to raise further capital and thus dilute my returns. So would you normally buy an IPO or wait to see the business battle through the first couple of years? Thanks, Dave. All right, Doc, let's do Uber first. Do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. on Uber the company as an investment? Yeah, I do have some thoughts. Like I said, I had looked at Uber when it came, uh, when it IPO'd because I was interested in the business model. Uh, my basic thinking with Uber is, uh, I have a very high level view of Uber, which is mm-hmm. if and when you have autonomous driving, I don't know where Uber would fit in that right. stack. Because yep. if it doesn't own the autonomous driving technology, they were doing some work that paused on it. I think they're trying to do some work. Um, I think a robo-taxi model where you actually don't have a driver can destroy. So there's there's something that can fundamentally destroy the Uber's business model. Um, right. And yeah, so that's so I haven't invested in Uber for that reason. Um, and, and that's my high-level view. I think it's a very interesting company. I think it's a very interesting model. Um, I like everything else about it. You know, we use Uber uh, ourselves, but again, I think there is this this issue of uh, disruption uh, for Uber, and and so I'm not really sure. I think Uber has network effects in the sense that you know more more cars, more drivers, more users means mm-hmm. more cars, more drivers, more users. But uh, I think a step change in technology can disrupt that. Um, is is what I think. So yeah, that's my current thinking or, or my view that I had and hadn't bought shares of Uber. Fascinating. Okay. Um, and IPOs, oh, sorry, I'll say, sorry, I'll say, I don't have a view on Uber. Um, I've followed the company. I do, I, I think we know that there's more private equity money sloshing around and companies like Uber probably have gone public later than they would have in the past. And I will just say that I think to some degree that means you have to be a little bit careful as an investor with what you buy at IPO and how big it already is. Um, not so Uber can't grow from here. It potentially can. I, Doc's not a, a huge fan, which is fine. Um, I don't have a particularly strong view other than I just, I think, you know, in the past, these companies would have been private for much less time because they needed the public markets to raise capital. And so potentially you've got a bigger, an earlier opportunity to grab a, a slice of this sort of business. There's so much private equity cash sloshing around right now. WeWork was another recent example. Um, it didn't get to the markets, thankfully. But, you know, there's, just so, there's billions and billions and billions of dollars in private money going around. You just get, they list a lot later. So there's potentially less up raw upside um, no, no, there's no upside plenty of companies have done well from IPO in recent years uh, but I would just say there's probably just something to have a think about uh, IPOs in general mate are you a buy at IPO or buy after three months buy after two years never buy how do you how do you think about investing in IPOs in, in Australia for extreme opportunities for example yeah so like I don't have a specific like I don't have a you know IPO don't do it or IPO must look at it <laughs> sort of oh, okay so I'll rephrase that I look at actually IPO documents uh, when they come out. And and, and the reason I look at them is very simple. Um, The way reporting works in Australia, actually IPO is really a good time to get Mm. a good 
overview of the business. Most Australian companies do not produce a good annual report. I mean, that's just a fact. Right, right, Few right. do, but the vast majority just basically do not produce it. I don't know why it has not been mandated, but it's probably because of the size of the companies. It's just probably too onerous. So the lack of an uh, right. you know the lack of an annual report basically means that an IPO is actually a very good opportunity to understand the business at least. Well, Understand the sales pitch of the business. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. caveat that because an IPO is really a sale of shares, right? So the so the uh, the people managing the IPO process are going to you know write about the business opportunity, the what the business is, what their competitors are, what they think the market is, and all those things. It's a really good way to at least get the company's view of their business and their future as they see it, and and their competition, right? And then of course that mm-hmm. becomes a good starting point for you. So I love it from a I love IPOs from a research point of view, okay. but I don't have any specific views on like, I, I don't say IPOs are a no-go and I don't say like IPOs are a must-go <laughs> um, right, right, in that right. sense. So I, I, don't, I don't use that information as a starting point to do my own research. I have also found, found here in Australia, um, uh, companies are, especially relatively smaller ones, uh, when I say relatively, like on a, on a, you know, those which are small relative to the big IPOs, Management mm. are you know are open to talk uh, talking to you so you you know you can talk to them you can ask questions uh, you don't have to go to these you know big ugly road shows and things like that so <laughs> I, I, it's a great it, in my view an IPO document and the process is a great way to know about business and I, I just love that process um, yeah, right. I have made a few recommendations right off the gate of IPO or soon after some I haven't uh, that that becomes an individual more of a judgment call at that point. Uh, yeah, but I, I in general lo- love the IPO. I, I love the IPO thing. I, I would like to see more companies do their IPOs and list on the ASX and you know talk to us about them. Uh, I think it's it's great for those people who are interested in the business aspects. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I look. I've traditionally been someone who's waited. Um, we've seen enough. Uh, we've seen enough businesses who've launched uh, IPO'd and then have never ever traded back at the IPO price to to know that a combination of lack of detailed financial history plus a combination of um, investor sentiment slash excitement plus, and frankly, it's the old Kerry Packer thing. There used to be a line back in Kerry Packer says, you never want to be on the other side of a trade from Kerry Packer, right? Because he was probably going to win. And I mean, if you're buying from him or selling to him, you're probably not getting the best price. Uh, to some degree, if you're buying from private equity, uh, there are exceptions, Doc, and I'm sure you may want to share some of those. But, you know, I, I, it's rare they're going to give you a good deal, right? They're going to sell out a price that's attractive for them at a time that is attractive for them. And that probably just means at some level, a combination of that and limited financial history means I'm more than happy to miss out on a little bit of gain for a little bit of time if it means I get to see the whites of management's eyes, the performance of the business in, in, the, in the public market, full glare, right, with all the appropriate disclosure stuff that comes with that. So I, I'm generally a give it... Uh, 12, 18 months, 24 months even to, before you go. Uh, but I understand people have different views. And also, by the way, for every Dick Smith or Meyer that never really traded at its IPO price, there's plenty that have gone on to do very, very well after IPO. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. Did you want to add to that, mate? No. I, I, cool. I, I think that's good. Very good. Uh, another question from another... I think it's the same Dave, actually. And, uh, hey, Falls, another question about Afterpay for Doc. Now, we talked about Afterpay on Friday, mate, but this one is Zip versus Afterpay. Given, he says, Dave says, given Zip's acquisition of US Quad Pay, would you prefer Zip over Afterpay? Now, Dave, you included the Zip Pay ticker. 
I'm going to give you I'm give you a pass because I've only just taken Nick to task. I don't want to take everyone to task. We do want to keep some listeners, but you know, next time just keep it in mind. Uh, is Zip a buy over afterpay? Look forward to the discussion. Cheers. Hashtag full on. Hashtag love the podcast. Very kind, Dave. Doc, Zip or afterpay and why? So, so yeah, it's a, it's a great question from Dave. Um, I actually don't have a fully informed view right now on Zip post okay. this um, US move. So I'm just okay. going to reserve my answer and say that's at this point um, I've not had a I've not had a good enough look to have a view as to what I think about you know is it like a two horse race or a one horse race or mm-hmm. what type of race is it and how it's going to work out so yeah I'll, I'll reserve that I don't have the answer right now for him sorry <laughs> I like it I like it uh, I'm going to say something I, I have said before and I think I stick by this that if you want to be in the buy now pay later space I I think a zip is less... I, I find it difficult, right? Afterpay is obviously the, the leader, right? And there's value in, in backing the, as you would say, Doc, doc the uh, top dog and first mover. That's definitely afterpay. There is some value, though, in, in being the smaller, uh, fast follower with a less um, exciting share price, a less excited share price and shareholder base. I And maybe this is the value guy in me to some degree coming out, but... Zip looks interesting to me. I got to say, I I just, I'm not sure. It feels like there's more raw upside in just kind of, you know, revaluation or just surprising the market. Whereas Afterpay feels to me like a bit of a a market darling where a lot of expectations are already built in. Is that that fair to say, or am I am I mischaracterizing that? Do you reckon? You're closer to it than me. Um, the the problem. I think the problem I have with answering that question is I Mm. really need. I don't. I haven't, as I said, I haven't looked at Zip post this to have okay. a view yep. so I mean so it's, it's, a, it's a, like a relative thing right and to make the relative comparison I think fairer I would need to really look at that and then think about it side mm. to side which I haven't done um, so uh, I mean I guess at a broad level these companies are no longer as undiscovered they were a few years back right so everybody knows about them there's a lot of excitement mm. so that's always something to be a little wary about um mm. Yeah, I'll keep it at that. <laughs> nice. All right, mate. We're almost done, buddy. We've we've had a really good chat. Can I can I throw you one more from Gemma? One more from Gemma, and that's it. We'll All make right, Gemma's Gemma. is the last one. I've said we we love our questions from our female listeners. Gemma says, "Hi, team. Love the podcast, and wish you offered a midweek episode to keep me going on my long drives to work during the week." Well, Gemma, we have rolled out some interviews in the last couple of weeks, which we'll probably keep trying to do bits and pieces of. So hopefully, that's giving you something to listen to. Uh, she says, I've got a question for the potty. What are your thoughts on the big tin can share purchase plan? Big tin can share purchase plan. Try saying that three times quickly. I purchased at 62 cents and the offer is for 67. So it's more than I originally paid. Do you think it is still worth 67 cents? The offer closes on June 16. Now, this will go to air on June the 14, I think. So <laughs> you'll have to be quick, Gemma, after we answer your question. But we'll do our level best to, uh, to give you some information you can use. We can't, of course, give personal advice. Doc, so first things first, Gemma's saying, well, look, I, I bought it at a cheaper price. Now it's more expensive. So should I still do it? Secondly, the share purchase plan, mate, worth participating in it or not? Okay, so what you paid then doesn't really matter. You need to think what the value of the company is right now. This is the general framework for the share purchase plan would be 
did you want to buy the shares? Do you want if you wanted to buy the shares, then you think, well, was the price right? And if the mm -hmm. price is right, then you can buy the shares. I think that's the general principle for buying any shares. Um, right. In the company saying buy my shares doesn't necessarily mean that you have to buy them. Uh, I think that's the other yeah, way of thinking about it's it. True, true. Now, yeah. now the market is right now saying the shares are worth ninety eight cents, and there the the company Big Ten Can is offering them to you at sixty seven cents. That's a pretty mm -hmm. hefty discount. Um, so effectively, you could potentially buy the shares and then sell them and make a 30 odd cent profit, you know, mm. um, per share. So that's, you know, and, and when that is the scenario, typically what happens is the share price place purchase plans are heavily oversubscribed, uh, yep. which means that the company is going to do some scale back. So that's the other thing. Scale back basically means that if you ask for, say, $30,000 worth of shares, you're probably going to get like $5,000 of shares or maybe less. I don't know. So that's the other point to keep in mind. The the final thing that, you know, I actually detest share purchase plans. Like, I, <laughs> the reason I don't like them, I don't like the the whole process and the, okay. uh, in the mumbo jumbo that goes with it. Like, you know, mm -hmm. do you buy my shares because I'm giving you the shares. But what I really yeah. dislike is, well, you can buy up to $30,000 of shares and then you apply for $30,000 of shares and they give you 2000 and then they hold on to your money for twenty eight thousand for some time, and then give it to you back to you, right? You know, like I yeah. mean, it's 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 that, and it, it doesn't allow you to. If you wanted your position size to be like three percent, you can't position size to three percent on a purchase plan where you don't know how many shares you're going to get. So those are the things, odds and ends of purchase plans that I really dislike. Uh, that's it. This one seems to be like you know, at least if the price holds, you you can make instant profit on it. Um, uh, we like the company Big Tin Can. We have recommended it a few times at Extreme Opportunities. Um, I, th I think it's a company that's doing well. It's in a space. It's a highly competitive space, but it is also an evolving space. Um, so the sales enablement uh, space, it's a pretty big market opportunity. Again, it's not mm. all, you know, Big Tin, Big Tin Can doesn't have to win everything. Uh, if it own, if it gets more, you know, its fair share, it should do well. And, you know, it's been executing well. It's growing fast. It's a fast growing company. Uh, it's mm. got enough, plenty of cash on its balance sheet now. Um, software company, so it comes with a lot of, you know, leverage. But when I say leverage in a good way, which means that, you know, after the fixed cost yep. has been recovered, everything is, is, is profit. A lot of margin opportunity there. So it's, it's a good company. I like it. We like it uh, in uh, extreme opportunities. Whether or not you want to buy more really is a question of allocation and price. I think the price is good. I've already kind of said that. Um, it's a question of allocation, right? Do, do you you know do you want to do you really want to own more shares of Big Ten Can? If it is yes, then by all means uh, go for the you know share place, placement plan or purchase plan. If not, then you can say thank you, but no thank you. Um, <laughs> that's, that's up to you. Uh, that's how I look at these, at least. As we say regularly, don't just do it just because they're making you an offer, right? Any company, um, there's 2,000 ideas on the ASX. If it's one you're already going to buy, it was literally the top of your list, do it. If there's another you like better, don't be sucked in just because they're sending you a piece of paper saying, hey, sign here and get some more shares. Uh, tempting, easy, simple. Sometimes it is count to the current price, which is attractive. But if it's your second best idea at any company, again, not about Big Tin Can, if anything is the second best idea, um, ignore it and go for your first best idea, I reckon, unless you need to do things like um, diversify and stuff like that. Any more on that, Doc? No, sir. Very good. Mate, before we go, we have to tell people they should follow us on social media. So here's a quick run through. I'll do it in reverse this time just for fun. Info at fool.com.au is our email address and our member services team will make sure we get your question. You can hit us up on Facebook. I'm at Scott Phillips Money, all one word. 
and The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool Australia. Pretty straightforward. You can direct message us there and you can also follow along our posts and all that kind of good stuff. You can hit us up on Instagram at The Motley Fool AU is our corporate account at TMF for The Motley Fool. TMF Scott P is my personal Instagram account and the only place you can find Doc on social media is on the Twitters at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Please throw us your questions, throw us your comments, give us some feedback, particularly these mailbag episodes. Frankly, it won't happen unless we have good questions from you. So if there's something you want to know, something you want to ask, something you want to talk about, let us know so we can do exactly that. In the meantime, we're done, but please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, through your favorite Android podcast app, or the new Podcast One app, because we are now there with some new fancy artwork, by the way. Mate. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Some nice little leather look background and a Podcast One logo at the bottom. It's all very professional, of course. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a big five-star rating. Leave us a review. Tell your friends. Spread the foolish word, as I said on Friday. Feel free to tattoo it on your body next to your Harley-Davidson logo or your... Doc, do you have a Tesla tattoo yet? No, not yet. An Apple tattoo? No, not yet. If you're I, going I, to, which I, one would you get? I would get neither. <laughs> Come on. Get off the fence. <laughs> if I made you have one or the other, which would you choose? I'd, I'd put a full tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Sucking up to the boss. Good choice. Bruce, Doc wants a pay rise. All right. And of course, don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Full Money. We'll be back on Tuesday with the Money Hacks episode and plenty of foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.